TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Pull up a rock by the campfire. It's time for that paleo show with your hosts, Sarah Stewart, Steve Hayter, and the man with no shoes, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Sarah Stewart. I'm Steve Hayter. And I'm Brett Hill. Welcome back, Dr. Brett. We missed you while you're away, but we're glad to have you back on board. Hey. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> and uh, hello to all of our fabulous listeners, and thank you for tuning in. We are super pumped this week to be interviewing a very special guest. In fact, we like him so much that this is his second time on the show, and we certainly hope that it won't be his last. Fasten your seatbelts and get ready for high amounts of awesome because today we are interviewing the founder of the paleo movement, Dr. Lauren Cordain. Steve and I are particularly stoked about this because last time Lauren was on the show, you guys all went nuts for it and we were a little bit jelly sitting at home because Steph and Dr. Brett got to do the interview. So today's a little bit of a a paleo dream come true for us. Um, So I had a realization last weekend that I thought I'd share with you. I met some fantastic new people at a course Steve and I were doing, and as you do, we got chatting, and we were talking about what got us all weak at the knees, and the subject of getting starstruck came up, and it was quite a hoot, because as I told my story about being so in awe of Chris Cresser, one of our previous guests, that I got all tongue-tied and called him Chris Crosser, (laughs) I realised that I was a little bit different to everyone else. I'm not someone that gives a rat's about the latest hot actor or super cute cute boy band, but when it comes to paleo legends, that's when I get all derp-brained. So anyway, I think everyone just kind of nodded politely and smiled so that I felt like having paleo nerd crushes was totally normal. With this in mind, I will do my best today to make sense and uh, not lose my head while we find out about all things Lauren Cordain. For most of you, books written by this brilliant American scientist are usually the first stop in your paleo education. All three of us here at the show certainly kicked off our journeys by wrapping our peepers around the paleo diet, and this book is such a wonderful base to build from. Lauren specializes in the fields of nutrition and exercise physiology, and he has managed to cram in super amounts of scientifically based information applicable to helping each and every one of us gain back our health. It just makes sense, and it's reassuring to know that the book is not just waffle. Uh, Lauren has the goods to back it up and has achieved a bachelor degree in health science, a master of science in exercise physiology, and he has also been awarded his PhD in exercise physiology. And that's seriously just small fry compared to everything else he has achieved throughout his amazing career. In addition to the Paleo Diet, Lauren Cordain has gone on to write The Paleo Diet for Athletes, The Paleo Diet Cookbook, and The Paleo Answer. Now, we most definitely know what it's like to feel overwhelmed when you're looking at all of the information available out there, trying to work out what is best for you. But rest assured, today you are keeping company with an amazing mind, and I promise that today's guest will arm you with some new tools and ideas to add to your paleo toolbooks uh, to keep you feeling motivated and firing on all cylinders. 
Welcome back to the show, the man responsible for igniting the primal fire inside millions of us, the original source of palspiration, that's paleo inspiration, Dr. Lauren Cordain. We are thrilled that you can join us today. Wow, thank you so much. What a wonderful uh, introduction and uh, I'm humbled by what you've said about the whole thing and you know, it's just it's good to to connect with the Australian people cuz uh, I love you guys so much. I've been down under uh speaking uh, three times and and I'll be down here soon again. So I am uh, once again humbled to speak to you people and uh, happy to bring the message to Australia. Oh, awesome. Well, um, Dr. Lauren, we feel the same. We think you're a bit of the, the paleo holy grail. So um, last time you spoke with us, uh, we left off just as you were undertaking some work on gut health and autoimmune protocol. Can you fill us in on how all of that is going and what you've been up to since then? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. And <clears throat> the all over the world in North America and in Europe and Australia, scientists are honing in on the the notion of autoimmune disease and the relationship to gut health. And and what we're finding is that uh, a leaky gut of all things, which a decade ago people would have never considered seems to be intimately associated with autoimmune disease and allergy. So, um, the connection to the paleo diet is the paleo diet uh, has a, a number of um, factors that seem to improve leaky gut. So uh, people that have autoimmune disease or allergy, uh, at least anecdotally at this point, seem to improve by adopting paleo diets. And... Um Lauren, one of the things uh, I'm interested in is, or, or somebody listening at home perhaps, what is what is autoimmune disease and, and how can somebody tell that perhaps, hey, I should go get this checked out? Well, <clears throat> autoimmune disease are diseases that many of us have heard about, um, rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, lupus, um, and there are probably close to 100 diseases that uh, are autoimmune in in nature. And and what that means is that the immune system uh, perceives the body's own tissues as foreign and Mm -hmm. attacks them as if they were a virus or a bacteria or a foreign body. And so the, the crazy part of it is, is that normally for most of us is that our immune system um, has a very exquisite ability to not mount an immune attack against their own tissues. So the $64,000 question is, is what causes the immune system to do this to yeah. our own tissues? And as I mentioned, increasingly the scientific community, immunologists and physicians that are involved in studying immune d- diseases uh, are honing in on the gut. And so it seems that um, when the gut becomes leaky, when the gut becomes uh, impervious to elements that should in theory be outside the gut, uh, the immune system gets fired up and turned on 
to specific tissues. And so that's the research group that I work with at Colorado State University, as well as around the world. That's kind of the working hypothesis is that uh, increased intestinal permeability is the uh, one of the universal environmental factors that seems to be involved with autoimmune diseases. And, uh, and Lauren, is there any actual research out there around the absence or presence of autoimmune disorders in the Paleolithic era? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, um, you know, we first off is that there's very few people left on the planet that uh, live as hunter-gatherers. And mm-hmm. in your part of the world, in, in northern Australia, um, you know, in, in 19... Hundreds in 1920s, there were still Australian Aborigines that lived, as they always have in North America. Uh, at the same time, we had Inuit people and Eskimos that that lived pretty much as uh, you know non-Westernized uh, foragers. And now those people don't exist. And so, the best science that we have today, looking back on that time when when people from the Western world were, the Western medical world were examining these folks, what we found is, is, is that they, from that perspective, is they did not have these diseases. So, for instance, um, if we look at multiple sclerosis, which is uh, a disease that impacts many people in Australia and an autoimmune disease that impacts people in, in Australia and in, in North America. What we find is, is that multiple sclerosis essentially did not exist, at least in North America, in the Inuit people, nor did it exist for the best data that we have from, uh, you know, Australian Aborigines. And now we find that those people, those folks from those societies, seem to have similar incidence rates. And so what it suggests is that there was uh, no change in their genetics, but rather a change in the environment. And so that's kind of the, that's the telltale sign that, you know, as scientists that we look for epidemiologically. Mm, Fantastic. I think that's really relevant to all of us to look back and learn from the past, which I guess is essentially what paleo is all about. Um, Dr. Cordain, what I'm interested to know in, uh, a lot of us, you know, we embark on our paleo journey and we experience that initial uh, high and joy of some really amazing health changes. And then as we start to iron it out, we might become more aware that we're perhaps um, experiencing issues with gut health or um, need to take on board some more autoimmune protocols. What um, suggestions or starting points could you give people that are are experiencing this currently? Well, you know, I I, I think autoimmune disease is just one part of the the whole spectrum of health and well-being, and most people don't have autoimmune diseases. So uh, in the Western world, uh, if we look at 100,000 people, um, we don't see that many people that have autoimmune diseases. But what we do see is people with multiple health issues that are not necessarily autoimmune-related. Uh, we see people that have overweight and obesity, and they have um, multiple symptoms of the um, <clears throat> of, of diseases of type 2 diabetes, we call this the the metabolic syndrome, overweight, uh, type 2 diabetes, 
um, hypertension, high blood cholesterol. So these are all known as the metabolic syndrome. And um, most folks that have these symptoms and signs uh, tend to improve fairly rapidly uh, when they adopt a a diet that is more consistent with what our ancestors ate. So it's not surprising. It's, it's like, my God, I mean, we shouldn't be eating refined sugars, refined carbohydrates, and processed foods. So we get those out of our diet. Well, what's left? Well, if you start eating real foods, um, you know, fresh fruits, vegetables, meats, seafood, uh, then we we tend to improve rapidly. Uh, and... You know, it's a very intuitive notion, and that's really kind of what the whole thing's all about. What's very gratifying for me as a scientist in a Division I research institution is to show that these very simplistic ideas about health and well-being are now being borne out in the scientific literature. I We had a question, uh, Lauren, from our Facebook um one of our followers, Leah, asked, uh, she said that one of the things that she enjoys about paleo is, is almost that it is, you know, uh, a minority uh, at the moment and that she enjoys being able to go to her butcher and, and ask for, you know, the beef fat offcuts, which have little value and therefore, are, you know, are cheap to her. And she's saying um, almost a, a little bit scared, you know, that with this uh, momentum that paleo is gaining, people seeing the value in, in just eating real food, uh, that those sorts of things might become a little bit more highly in demand uh, as as this becomes more mainstream. Um, and she asks, has it has it been considered, um, or, or what do you say to people when they say, you know, when we look at paleo going mainstream and and those practices used to um, have pasture fed animals and so forth become more popular um, has it been considered the effect that will have on our environment and and i guess you know the the greater world at large you know those are are very good uh, questions and uh you know I, i don't know that i i'm completely qualified to be able to answer you know the the entire environmental and holistic impact of this idea. But I I think that as a species, humans can make it work. And um, where we once formerly threw food out, we gave it away as dog or pet food, and we pastured animals in in places that they shouldn't be done. Um, I think there's sustainability issues here. Uh, the people that have much more knowledge on these ideas than I do uh, have provided input. And so it makes a lot of sense. Is For instance, in your part of the world, in Australia, um, you have large kangaroos and, and other mammals that, uh, you know, can, uh, you know, forage off of land that you can't put cows and sheep and, and what have you on. And the flesh that these animals can make is certainly uh, helpful for for modern humans so i think that it just this this concept opens up new dimensions that we don't need to feed animals that we eat grains that are produced in in areas with fertilizers and and what have you so uh it, it it opens up new dimensions that 
we once thought were not helpful. So um, I think that, um, as your colleagues have mentioned, is that, uh, you know, saturated fats and, and animal fats are not necessarily harmful for us, particularly when they're put into a diet um, that contains plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables and, and, and produce from the land. And uh, you mentioned Australia a couple of times already, Lauren, and obviously you've been out to Australia and you're coming back a couple of times in the near future. So uh, I'm curious, when you came out to Australia, how did you find the whole sort of paleo movement in Australia and how easy did you find it to, to source stuff, for, you know, to eat and to eat paleo in Australia compared to, say, back home? Well, that's really a, <clears throat> a good point. And uh, I went out to Australia in the the late 90s, so we're talking almost 20 years ago, and I was amazed at um, the quality of the food that the Australian people have in their supermarkets. And so I was, uh, I spoke in Canberra at the university there almost 20 years ago, and I, I asked the people that were my hosts to take me to an Australian supermarket. And so I remember doing that, going from the dormitories at the University of Canberra and walking about, I don't know, two or three miles from the, the dorms. And, I, and in the evening when I came back, I remember seeing kangaroos feeding out <laughs> in the fields uh, next to me. But as I went, as I, <laughs> as I, as I walked uh, to the supermarkets, it was absolutely amazing that the bounty and the cornucopia of foods that are available in your country because of the the geographic location mm. of where you were. And so in Canberra, uh, it's like in the supermarkets, there was this incredible uh, uh, seafood that was available, these gigantic shrimp and lobster and fish. And then <clears throat> the, the types of of grass-produced meats that you have lamb and beef and uh, everything is fresh and it's grass-produced. And here in the, the States, that's kind of unusual because 20 years ago, is you, if you wanted to get, you know, grass-produced beef, it was almost impossible. Whereas in Australia at the time, it was just, there was a little marker on the meat saying grass-produced and it came from here and such and such. And then because of the latitude in, in Australia is that you know, you're not as high as we are in North America and not as far south as in uh, South America, is that you have produce that uh, is available throughout your continent and even further uh, north in, in the you know, more southern latitudes. You have all this incredible produce and fresh fruits that's available year-round. So... Um, to me, Australia, before you ever even tried, was was paleo in nature because you had basically what uh, people depended upon. Now, in opposition to that, in very northern climates like in Alaska and Canada, people are dependent upon uh, cereal grains and potatoes and starches and foods that you know, don't degrade. Uh, so uh, I think to answer your question, Australia is a perfect example of an area where people can eat paleo year-round and, and do it on an economic basis. 
Yeah, we're pretty lucky. And I think the more that we um, get to speaking with people in, in various parts of the world, it just confirms that. So we're pretty excited to, to be able to reap the benefit of living in Australia. Um, Dr. Lauren, um, one of our listeners um, has got a question for you and, and something that I look for personally in, um, I guess, my paleo gurus or, or mentors is, um, you know, it's natural when we come out with um, a theory or a way of living that that's going to evolve over time. And something I really ex- respect and admire is being able to revise your thoughts based on, you know, new information coming to light. So Serana asks... Um, what is your take or opinion on sea salt uh, intake? Um, the Serana mentions that in your original book, uh, you're perhaps not so much for it, um, and she can't recall any other mention of it uh, in the Paleo Answer. So, yeah, she's wondering where you're at with uh, sea salt at the moment. Well, once again, a, a very good question, and I think that when we come up with uh, complex <clears throat> questions about diet and health, um, the best orienting paradigm um, is, again, the evolutionary paradigm is how, as a species, did we evolve? And there's no doubt when we look at um, the people that colonized the Australian continent uh, 50 to 60,000 years ago, they came through Asia and they probably... Uh, followed the coastline. And so any people that were living close to the coastline um, probably had access to uh, sea salt. Now, <clears throat> did they eat it on a daily basis? Probably not. Did they put 10 grams of salt into their food on a daily basis? Did they sprinkle their food with a compound we call salt Probably not. They had access to it, and so people living in coastal areas um, in all likelihood had higher intakes of salt than hunter-gatherers and our ancestors that were living inland. However, as I mentioned, the the total amount of salt that we eat in in the Western world is about 10 grams a day, and if we look at salt, salt is composed of sodium and chloride, um, and if we look at uh, chloride, it, it's about six grams, and there's about four grams of sodium. So uh, that's a huge, huge amount when you're living inland. Um, and so my, my take on the whole um, salt issue is that if, and most of the salt that we eat, about 70 to 80% comes from processed foods. So if you stop eating processed foods, and, and by the way, uh, bread and, and grains contain some of the number one source of, of salt in the Western diet because they're put into everything. So my take on it is, is that if you eat fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, uh, eggs, meat, uh, seafood, fish, and what have you, uh, it's very difficult to even come close to 10 grams of, of salt per day. It's more like about two. And um, so I, I think that uh, we're much better off if, if we don't eat salt. And people in the, in the contemporary, the new quote-unquote paleo community that think that sea salt is, is, is okay 
are wrong. There, there, there is not a precedence uh, in ancestral human diets for eating uh, 10 grams of salt. So it's, it's a huge mistake, and, and experimentally we know from randomized controlled trials that humans do much better when they don't eat salt. So, Lauren, uh, I'm just thinking back to when Sarah and I were, um, were playing around with, um, with juice fasting. And what I found was when we were juicing with, uh, say, celery, dark leafy greens like kale, um, these things actually taste salty in themselves. So w- w- could, it, could you say or w- would the science suggest that getting your salts in, in these forms is, is not only better for you but more bioavailable? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's no doubt. Very good point is that humans need salt. There's there's no doubt that we need salt, sodium, chloride, and so we need both of those elements. We need sodium to help maintain uh, multiple physiologic systems. We need chloride, um, but we need it in in, in balanced um, in a balanced term. And so when we look at salt uh, and, and we look at at various salts and we look at ions is that we we tend to get them in in balanced inputs uh, that are in relationship to other uh, ions for instance magnesium and calcium um, we tend to get these in a, a range of inputs and our kidneys and our physiologies are able to handle them in this um, bell-shaped curve. And, and the problem is, is that when we start inputting these things in our diet that are in very abnormal uh, points, is that it alters the relationships of all the other ions. And so we know that when we have high intakes of sodium and chloride, it tends to imbalance the way the kidney handles magnesium and other ions. So I think your point is very well taken is that when you, when you get salt from, if you're juicing or getting it from vegetables, as we've always done, is it tends to give us uh, this balanced input and high levels of sodium and chloride uh, from processed foods and, and, and modern foods imbalances the way in which uh, our kidneys and our bodies handle other ions. Hey, um, Lauren, you mentioned the new paleo community before when you were talking about salt. And uh, I guess nowadays, that, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that kind of gets lumped into the paleo movement. And uh, and I know you being very much a researcher, you know, like to base everything very much on the research. So, is there any stuff there that you find that sort of that is added into this whole paleo movement now that that perhaps frustrates you a bit, or that you think perhaps shouldn't be there? You've, you've sort of just talked a little bit about the salt. Is there anything else there that sort of, from a scientific standpoint, you think doesn't quite stand up? Well, first off, you know, thank you for being, you know, kind of recognizing me as being part of this whole thing from the very beginning. But I certainly don't have. Uh, you know, the absolute insight, I, I'm not God by any means <laughs> <laughs> about this. And I, I think that's what's so cool about this entire movement is that, you know, it it is a human movement. And long after I'm dead and gone, this is a, a concept that will 
be self-sustaining and that people will uh, consider. So it, 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 it's a very powerful idea for all of humanity that diet is not anything about, you know, doctor such and such from the Florida grapefruit diet in the United States or somebody in Australia or, or what have you. This is a, this is a concept that uh, transcends any single human being. This is a diet. Uh, it's not even a diet. It's a, it's a way of eating um, that makes a lot of sense for all of us if we want to minimize our, our risk for chronic disease and, and live healthier lives. Uh, you know, so uh, that's really the way I approach it is that let's look at it together um, as sentient uh, thinking human beings. And uh, the reason that we have nutritional requirements in the first place are because of our evolutionary background, who and what we were. And uh, when we make our uh, you know, present environment consistent with the environment that we adapted to. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. Looking at what we um, do know and, and what we can do to um, really make an impact with our health. Um, Dr. Lauren, I'm conscious of your time. We've just about got to wrap it up. But before we do, I want to take advantage of having you on the show. Obviously, um, it's been a huge learning curve for you from the beginning of your journey until this point, And I'm sure that it won't be stopping here today. Um, but for all of us, um, what do you know now that you wish you knew back then? Um. You know, I, I just think about this this whole idea, and um, it's a learning curve for all of us. And as a species, you know, we need to be we need to recognize, um, you know, what has come before us, and to see where we're going. Uh, the notion of Evolution through natural selection will not go away. It's one of the best ideas uh, that humanity has conceived, and this, of course, came from Darwin and, and evolutionary biologists afterwards. And so what is new is the notion that uh, evolution through natural selection applies to nutrition and uh, human nutrition is based on the, the same biological principles that govern everything biologically. And the recognition of that idea is is relatively new. And I was lucky enough to be involved in this in the early part of my career. And um, as I mentioned, this won't go away. This is the most powerful idea in all of biology and medicine is evolution through natural selection. And when we recognize that this uh, idea that governs all of biology governs all of nutrition, then humans will be much better off. And so this is not a diet. This is not a fad. This is recognition of powerful biology and science by the world 
and I, I just happened to be in the middle of it. And so I'm, I'm very happy to and gratified to see that this is becoming, you know, part of the way in which people uh, perceive healthy diets. And, and thank you, thankful to people from Australia um, who are, you know, have a, a good handle on all kinds of things that have picked up on this as well as people in the United States and Europe. And so your continent in particular is, is, uh, is very, what do I want to say, has recognized this. And uh, I'm happy to be coming down and speaking again uh, while I'm still alive. <laughs> uh, well, well um, thank you so much, Dr. Lauren Cordain. You have given us so much food for thought, pun intended. Um, <laughs> that is all we have time for today. But the inspiration and information certainly doesn't have to come to a halt there. Um, as you've heard, um, Dr. Cordain will be in Sydney April 11 and 12 for the annual Bioceuticals Research Symposium um, and the theme being Unraveling 21st Century Epidemics, which I think will be fascinating. So members of the public are welcome and if you are interested in hearing Dr. Cordain speak, um, visit bioceuticals.com.au for more information. But if you do nothing else, you absolutely must go and check out thepaleodiet.com. Why? Uh, because this site is jam-packed with the best paleo information you can get your hands on. Uh, you can take a look at articles on current and trending health topics, access paleo, I almost said paleo, geez, <laughs> <laughs> paleo food ideas, and you can even get a bit paleo famous by submitting your very own recipes. So if you'd like to cook more but don't know how, visit the Paleo Diet store and purchase just a copy of the Paleo Diet Cookbook along with all of Lauren's other brilliant publications. So if you're already an avid fan and you're keen to take it to the next level, why not dive headfirst into all the Paleo Amazeballs you can handle and uh, sign up and become a platinum member of the Paleo Diet. So stay in the loop, guys. Get on your computers, quick smart, search for The Paleo Diet on YouTube, head over to Facebook and hit like on Dr. Lauren's page, The Paleo Diet. And for the Twitter fans, make sure you follow The Paleo Diet there also. So there you have it, plenty of resources to keep that primal fire burning bright. We will publish all of the links you need onto our Facebook page. And thank you again to Dr. Lauren Cordain for coming on the show and sharing his infinite paleo wisdom with us all. Um, as always, we hope you have enjoyed the show as much as we did. Make sure you tell us what you think. And until next week, check us out on Facebook and Instagram, share your story and help to grow the paleo tribe worldwide. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.